kindly take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We will finish this chapter today. We've been considering this church for which Jesus bled. The Bible makes much of the blood of Christ as we have been singing and praying about in this first part of the service. And we consider now those for whom he did bleed, those for whom he died, and what it is that he is about in making us, in reshaping us. In 1 Corinthians 12, we've been considering how each of us has a part in each other's growth as a, as a Christian. Each of us has a part to play in one another encountering Jesus. That you don't get enough of Jesus from Sandy alone. You don't get enough of Jesus from any preacher. But you experience Jesus time and again from the front, from the back, from the sides, from underneath, from on top, from one another in word and deed. And that's what a spiritual gift is all about, bringing to you Jesus and God using your gifts that you might bring to a fellow believer, to other brethren, Jesus. That he might be seen in all of his manifold and various glory. And dear friends, that's what we are about here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12. We saw in verses 1 to 11 a great discussion about one spirit, many gifts. And then from verse 12 until the close of this chapter in verse 31, he turns a little bit, a slight deviation, and he begins to speak now of one body, many members. That is how those, that one spirit and those gifts impacts each of us is the body of Christ. And so I ask you to join with me in prayer now as we seek God's wisdom from this text. Let us pray. Our Father, our prayer is simple and straightforward. Speak and give us the ears to hear, for we're listening for you. Amen. Our verses are from verse 14 to 31, but I wish for you to read with me from verse 12. This is God's word. The body is a unit, though it is made up of many parts. And though all its parts are many, they form one body. So it is with Christ. For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slave or free. And we were all given the one spirit to drink. Now the body is not made up of one part, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, it would not for that reason cease to be part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would the sense of hearing be? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell be? But in fact, God has arranged the parts in the body, every one of them, just as he wanted them to be. If they, if they were all one part, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, but one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I don't need you. And the head cannot say to the feet, I don't need you. On the contrary, those parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable, and the parts that we think are less honorable we treat with special honor, and the parts that are unpresentable are treated with special modesty, 
while our presentable parts need no special treatment. But God has combined the members of the body and has given greater honor to the parts that lacked it, so that there should be no division in the body, but that its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. And in the church, God has appointed first of all apostles, second prophets, third teachers, then workers of miracles, also those having gifts of healing, those able to help others, those with gifts of administration, and those speaking in different kinds of tongues. Are all apostles? Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all have gifts of healing? Do all speak in tongues? Do all interpret? But eagerly desire the greater gifts. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers, and the flowers fall. The word of our God stands forever. Amen. Some of you will recall the old TV show from a couple of decades at least ago, two, three decades ago, My Three Sons. Now, I don't remember much of the show, but the expression always stays in my mind because I grew up in a home of three boys. And we were all about the same age, uh, two years and four months, separate the three of us. I was the oldest, and so those of you who are oldest will know that I got all of the responsibility, but none of the respect that was rightly due me. Not only were we all about the same age, but we all slept in the same bedroom, and a rather small one at that. And you might imagine with that kind of a scenario, you're, you, you are rife for fighting, for squabbling, for rivalry, for competitiveness, and that we, we had in spades. So much so that my middle brother, David, slept on the roof. He decided he had had enough, he had moved to the roof, and he slept there for months. I mean months. You know, when you grow up in California, you don't have to worry about rain in the summer. You don't have to worry about thunderstorms. And so he just camped. And as you would, those of you who know me know, surely that if my brothers had just aligned themselves with my will and my desire and my godly leadership, all would have been well. But I had nothing to do with this. The reality is that all of us, my mother would certainly say this about my brothers and I, we were three little and then not so little barbarians. We're rough, we're cantankerous, we're at each other. And is not part of parenting the cultivation of civility, teaching children table manners to use forks and spoons and knives instead of their fingers? To learn how to greet someone with a handshake, to learn how to say thank you or you're welcome, to learn certain rules of engagement like no biting, uh, no punching or kicking, but rather to share and to take turns. Is, is that not all part of what we're about, the teaching of civility, how to get along with one another? And I would submit to you that that is a huge burden on every family, and if multiple children a huge burden of trying to encourage civility is because we all have a certain barbaristic streak in our hearts. All of us are barbarians at a certain level. And you parents, I'm not one, not one yet anyway, 
I'm not one, but you parents, is that not a huge part of your task? Well, I want to suggest to you that while you parents are merely trying to control and contain that kind of barbarism in your home, God is about the business of rooting it out of you by means of the Holy Spirit. Because all of us as adults have that same streak. We've learned how to better control it, Lord willing, but we still all have a certain streak of, of alienation one to another. And the gospel is here to bring peace to us, not only between us and the Lord, but between us and one another. Jesus bled for your human relationships. He bled to make you one people, one body. And he's going to reconcile you to one another. Whatever your past differences, whatever your ethnic background, whatever your social standing, whatever you may want to use to divide yourself, God is about the business of making you one. Jesus bled for that. And the message of 1 Corinthians 12 is this, in a certain sense. God has so constituted the church that he is driving out that barbarism in your heart, in part by entangling you with one another, entangling you in such a way that you cannot dispense with each other, that you cannot let go of each other without losing Christ. And so the one body needs all of its members. And in this text that we find here from verses 14 to 31, it's very simple, I think, the way it lays out. The first point of the first paragraph is you can't pull away. You can't pull away from the body of Christ. See, the reality is there's a certain isolationist streak in all of us. Even those of you who are card-carrying relational animals, okay? Even you still have a certain streak inside yourself that wants to protect, kind of guard yourself, maintain social distance, not just physically, but in the relationship more broadly, maintaining a certain distance. And if you don't get things your way, there is a temptation in all of us to want to pick up our marbles, so to speak, and to go home. Do we not? And so people come and go in churches, come and go in relationships, because all of us have a certain cantankerous bristle and are quick to push others away or to pull ourselves away. In this case, that's what Paul's talking about here. You can't say just because you don't have the gift you want, they don't need me and I don't belong and throw what my father used to call snit. And so it is, we're tempted to do that. We have a certain sneaking doubt, some of us, that we don't have much to offer. Get him over there. He's got a lot to offer, but me, I don't have much. That we're inadequate. And when we feel that we might be inadequate, rather than prove that we're inadequate, we stand on the sidelines and let somebody else do it. Or we might have that sneaking suspicion that God has really blessed somebody else much more than he's blessed you. And so out of a certain sullen envy, you sit on the sideline. Either way, we're constantly pulling ourselves out of the game. And yet what Paul says here is this. If you're a Christian, you are in the body. You may not feel like you belong. You may not even want to belong. But you do belong because God made you to belong in his body period. 
And so God has set up the church in such a way that our involvement is required. That he has given to each of us a part. And notice in verse 18, he says, to each one of the parts he has designed it according to his own will, according to his own desire. And so, dear friends, if you're not playing your part, something of Christ is not being seen here. If you're not playing your part, something of his ministry is not happening. If you're not playing his part, playing your part, then something of the love of Christ is not being experienced in this church. There are various books out that speak of the so-called love languages, the five love languages. I would submit to you as I've studied and thought about 1 Corinthians 12, these are the love languages of God. Because these are all the different ways in which God comes to his people, through his people, to express his covenantal love and to express his, his, his desire for his people and to buttress their faith that he might get them home. The spiritual gifts in all of their manifold and various diversity are the love languages of God by which he would love you and by which he would use you in order for him to love his people. And so you all have a part. George Bush, George Sr., the one who fought in World War II, said this about his, his time in World War II. He looks back with great appreciation and he says this, I was a tiny part something noble. And what Paul the Apostle is saying here is this. God has made all of us in such a way that we can be a tiny part of something noble. What is that something noble? The great drama of redemption when Jesus Christ shedding his blood, giving up his body that he might save for himself a people and that he might save not only a people, but that he might save the whole of creation to create a new heavens and a new earth where his goodness and his righteousness and his glory fill it. And he's given you a tiny part to play in that noble purpose. So don't push away. You can't push away. Secondly, what you see in these verses is that we not only can't pull away from the body of Christ, but we can't push away the body of Christ. That's the meanings of verses 21 and 26. Wanting and being tempted to say to others, I don't need you. There isn't a one of us in this room that likes being dependent. Not a single person here. I've told you before that when I was in high school, given the family circumstances, we found ourselves on free lunches at school and, and food stamps in the shopping market. And my brothers and I couldn't stand next to my mother when she pulled those things out, out of just sheer embarrassment and shame. And if you're in need, I hope you won't feel that way. It is part of our desire as a culture and a society to care for those who, for whatever reason, are in less fortunate situation. But the reality was, that's how I felt, because none of us want to feel dependent. None of us want to feel really and truly like we need others. You want to be your own man. You want to be your own woman, as it were. Yet the Bible says we do need each other. We are tied together into an interdependent web 
that cannot be torn apart. That's what God is doing. Why is he doing that? Because if you have a chance to be free of this web of people, you will. If you have a chance to not depend on others, but just kind of marshal your own resources, you will. In fact, you do that with God, too. If God doesn't reel you in and make you more and more and more dependent on Him, you'll tend to go more and more independent of Him. And so God's about the business of reeling you in. He's about the business of tying us together. And the reality is there's far too much haughtiness in the church. We don't need those people. You know, in different churches, different gifts are lifted up. In some churches, it's the miraculous gifts that are the high and lofty ones. In other churches, it's the evangelistic gifts that are the high and lifted ones. In other churches where, where social concerns predominate, it's the gifts of mercy that are the most honored. And then in other churches, it's the teaching gifts. It's those who can teach or preach that are lifted up. Whatever it is, we all find ways to exalt certain gifts and denigrate others. And what God is saying here is that all the members of Christ's body are honored and gives this glorious hope that those who have seemingly less honor, at least where they currently work, as it were, those that, where they minister, God has given more honor to them out of grace that we all might hold on and might not divide, but rather be interwoven one to another. My father was an airline pilot, and so I remember when the Concorde jet first came out, and we got a model of the Concorde jet, and I've looked at models of the Concorde jet, and I've seen the Concorde in the air before, but you know what? It wasn't until this week that I finally started thinking about the tires on a Concorde jet. I mean, you can think about a lot on a Concorde that flies at a supersonic rate, but the tire is not the first thing you think about. And yet, as we've been reading in the papers, that may well have been the source of this huge tragedy. A 16-inch piece of metal on the runway, maybe cutting a hole into the tire and setting uh, in motion a, a catastrophic set of events. Who thinks about the tire? doesn't draw much attention in a supersonic flashy jet until something goes wrong. So it is. Some of you may feel like you're a tire in the Church of Jesus Christ. In the first service, Sean Brandt gave a children's sermon of a UPS truck, and he likened the church to a UPS truck. Well, you may be the tire on the truck, dear friends. No tire, no go. The body of Christ needs you, and we all need all parts of this body, no matter how small or seemingly insignificant they may seem. Finally, what Paul is saying, you can't pull away from the body, you can't push away the body, but rather you've got to learn to give and to receive in the body. Verses 27 to 31, the apostle is underscoring how all of us are incomplete all by ourselves. All of us are insufficient no one man by himself is the church. No one woman by herself is the body of Christ. And no one of you can receive all that you are to receive as a Christian by himself. Eugene Peterson put it brilliantly. He says, by ourselves, we are not ourselves. We're less. 
because we need the input of one another to be what God has created us and recreated us to be. So you ask, well, how then can I know my part? How is it that I'm to give? How is it that I'm to to serve the church? Well, just a couple of thoughts in closing. First, I would encourage you to study the needs of the church. The whole purpose of the gifts is to build up, to edify the church. So what are the needs that are out there? And then secondly, ask yourself this question. What do I have that can help meet those needs? What is it about me? What is it about my interests, my gifts, my abilities, my desires? How can I address some of those needs? You know, we've just brought on Nemi Lorenzi on staff as a lay mobilization director to help some of you figure that out. If you don't have anyone to speak to, come see Nemi and allow her to help you find a place of service in the church. I'd also encourage you to talk to your friends. One of the best ways of knowing your gifts is knowing how God has used you in the past. Talk to your Christian friends. Ask them how God has touched them through you. That's not asking an immodest question. That's asking an honest question. We all ought to encourage one another. And when you see, when you catch a brother or sister being a conduit for the love of Jesus Christ and helping to remind you of the gospel, would you please encourage them so that they have a sense for how God's using them? So they too might be more encouraged to use their gifts. And finally, one last suggestion I'll give you. How about a little holy trial and error? What do I mean by that? I mean, step up to the plate, put a bat in your hand, and take a big old cut. Swing. You know, Mark McGuire has paid millions and millions of dollars to hit the ball three times out of ten. Have you thought about that? He's paid millions to miss it seven times. Now, if baseball can survive with more failure than success, why can't the church, the place of grace, survive with a little failure, with a few swings and misses? Okay? So stay up there. Another ball's coming in a few minutes. Swing, hit, take a cut. You know, dear friends, I think we're all way too timid. We forget that it's grace that gives us the freedom to fail. We're also afraid that we just might fail. We don't want to prove that we will, so we stand on the sideline and let someone else do it. And I'm encouraging you, by the grace of God, take a bat in hand and just give something a try. You just may find God's calling you to do something you never thought you could do by just stepping out and giving it a go. And you know what? If you fail at it, you give us all a chance to laugh. You give us all a chance to enjoy it and to grow in Christ together. Dear friends, isn't that part of what the gospel is supposed to do? Free us to laugh at one another in love. So dear friends, a little holy trial and error. Well, my fellow barbarians, there's grace for you, grace to fail. It's a grace that was purchased at the cost of the given body and the shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to sit at this table that celebrates that we are a people that have been purchased by Jesus Christ for Jesus Christ. And not only that, we have been a people purchased for one another. So as we gather around this table, 
Remind yourself, not only of your personal relationship with Jesus, remind yourself that you have been baptized into one body, that you have been given one spirit to share here. And thank him for incorporating you in this interdependent one body of Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Father, we do thank you. Though we may be barbarians at heart, you are about the business not only of taming, but that you are about the business of reclaiming and reworking our hearts, that we might really know what it is to love one another. Gracious Lord, free us by this gospel to try to love one another in ways that maybe we haven't done so before. Give us a liberty that can only come from you. We pray in Jesus' name.